Welcome back to another edition of the Cats Illustrated Podcast. I am your host and publisher, Justin Rowland, and joining me today to help preview the Kentucky-Vanderbilt game this weekend is Chris Lee of VandySports.com. Chris, thank you for joining us. How are you doing, man? I'm excellent. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the Commodores. Derek Mason's team is 3-4, and four, but they have not played an easy schedule, and you know, they're the out-of-conference foes that SEC teams normally beat, but Vanderbilt has already seen Florida, Georgia, South Carolina, Notre Dame out of conference, Chris. They've lost four out of five. Tough schedule. What are some things that they have to do to, to get things fixed, to get things right, and, and back on the right side of the ledger? Well, I think the big thing was what people had been screaming for them to do all year last week, which was get the ball to Keyshawn Vaughn. He had eight touches against Florida for 131 yards and that included a 75-yard touchdown on a screen pass. And when you're out running Florida's defense, that tells you what kind of player he is. I think that was assignment number one. Unfortunately for them, he got hurt early second quarter. So he played about 18 minutes. And who knows what would have been done had he not been hurt, but that's what happened. I think that they are a team that's talented offensively. I think they've got more players on that side of the ball that can play in the NFL than they almost ever have. And I don't know that any of them are top three or four round draft picks, but I think they've got a lot of guys who can make a roster. Their problem is on the defensive side of the ball. They can't get stops. They can't get a pass rush. They got three turnovers last week and still couldn't come in within single digits of Florida. I just think that tells you how many issues they have on that side of the ball. Yeah, it's it's a little bit strange for for people maybe who don't cover or, or follow Vanderbilt football on a week to week basis. I guess before more recent times, Kentucky's always had kind of the perception of being an offensive program or dating back to the Tim Couch days. And Vandy is has more been the defensive oriented program. And I guess the roles are a little bit reversed this season. The one game that stands out to me, Chris, is the South Carolina game. They played Notre Dame really tough in South Bend almost pulled an upset against a team that could well be in the college football playoff. Florida's on fire, and they nearly beat Florida. Georgia, I think in spite of the egg they laid in Baton Rouge, everybody knows is really good. But what happened against South Carolina? Is 37-14. Was there any, anything about that game that caused it to be so lopsided? You know, it, it's weird, first of all. Carolina's got their number, which I think Kentucky's beaten South Carolina five years in a row. Uh, and really, probably over the last decade, Kentucky and Vanderbilt are not that dissimilar but for whatever reason, Kentucky's got Carolina's number. Well, Carolina's beaten Vanderbilt, I think, now 10 times in a row. So there's that. Uh, for whatever reason, they just seem to know all the buttons to push. I just think they got completely outcoached. I think they're pretty predictable. I think Will Muschamp kind of knew the buttons to push. Um, you know, they just – it's kind of the same thing every week. And you've – Justin, I know you've had this when football seasons don't go well. It seems to be the same two or three talking points every week. That's kind of what – they're in right now is one of these ruts where it's just the same issues every week that cause them to lose and I think South Carolina did a good job of exposing them Carolina's not a really good running team but their rush defense just can't stop any good rushing attacks right now um, I think that they found some guys to pick on in the secondary that I hadn't been picked on before there were a couple of big plays that really popped that game wide open and just a combination of those big plays on offense with the fact that Vanderbilt couldn't stop anybody on defense and couldn't generate any big plays of its own on offense, too. They had a really hard time with the Kinlaw kid, their defensive lineman, just couldn't block him, and that caused a lot of disruption. So really it was, I think, those things 
that kind of started this for them, uh, the, the start of really the, the slide that they're in right now where they just haven't played very well. Keyshawn Vaughn is somebody that, you know, diehard Kentucky fans know about because they recruited him coming out of high school. They were really targeting Damian Harris, five-star in-state kid who ended up going to Alabama. Vaughn picked Illinois, ended up with Vanderbilt. Um, he could certainly help him, although Benny Snell is obviously doing very well. I know he was he was injured against Florida, but then I think I saw on Twitter he said that he would he indicated he would be okay. Is his status something that Derek Mason has addressed, or just his readiness for this weekend? They have their press conference on Tuesday, Justin, and yesterday he indicated we're doing this on Wednesday. Mason indicated he'd probably be back. You noted the tweet, so I think that a concussion is the issue. They've got to go through protocol and get the clearance. So that's always the caveat in, in seeing how if he gets cleared, if he doesn't get cleared. But I think that's the thing that probably they're waiting on. And, and for all I know, it may have happened by now. Yeah. Well, you know, you mentioned maybe Vanderbilt was outcoached against South Carolina. Inevitably, when when there are more losses than wins at a place like Vanderbilt, Kentucky, everybody knows that – the obstacles to winning at, at Vanderbilt and Kentucky are probably steeper than they are maybe anywhere else in the SEC other than maybe one or two places. Um, certainly difficult, but I guess this is Derek Mason's, what, his fifth, sixth year at Vanderbilt? Fifth year? And he's had a losing record every year now. Honestly, Chris, I thought when, I hate to open an old wound or, or breach a sore subject, but when James Franklin left Vanderbilt, I think I and a lot of people assumed that it would be difficult for most potential successors to maintain the level of success that he uh, had enjoyed at Vanderbilt. And with the SEC East apparently getting stronger, we didn't know that at the time, it'd be even more of an uphill climb. I did think a couple of years ago that he was going to prove me wrong. It, it seemed like he was kind of stabilizing things and getting some footing and and starting to get things tilted in the right direction. But again, they've been under um, 500 two more years since then, since that bowl uh, appearance. What is his job security like right now? And, I mean, is he coaching for his job the rest of this season? Or where do, where are the boosters? Where is the administration? Where is the fan base? Kind of the pulse of those things at? It's hard to say for several reasons. First of all, they made what I think was a very poor decision after he went 6-7 and seven two seasons ago. And – Look, they finished well. They were competitive against some other teams. Uh, they beat Georgia on the road. They shellacked Tennessee pretty good at home and beat an Ole Miss team that had come off a really impressive performance in a win at College Station the year before. But they finished 6-7. and seven. And in hindsight that year, I think that Adam Butler, who now plays for the Patriots and has a prominent role, on their defensive line, and Zach Cunningham, who was the first team All-American that everybody remembers, had a whole lot to do with their success that year. They were both Franklin recruits. As Derek has gotten basically exclusive control of the program with his recruits, the results have not followed. But the problem is you don't win at Vanderbilt very much, and I think you kind of tend to cling to any indications there can be success. And when there were some two seasons ago – they signed him to a five-year contract that is guaranteed through 2021, and there's an option for 2022. I think that's the school's option, but I'm not certain on that. So that's number one is if he leaves, I'm presuming there's a pretty hefty buyout there. I think he's making around $2.5 a year 
uh, that's got to be dealt with for three more seasons, plus whatever is in there for his assistance. But they've also changed ADs. Uh, David Williams had not done a very good job for at least three or four years. Everybody close to the program knew it. Finally, a series of articles was written by the Tennessean, which brought heat on the chancellor. I think it was 100% deserved. Uh, they finally had to part ways with David Williams in the last year of a 10-year contract. Uh, speaking of bad contracts, that was a bad one for them, too. So they are now without an athletic director. I guess he's sort of serving out his term until they get one. They are actively searching for one. They hope to have one by mid-December at the latest, which begs the question of how much latitude does he have when he comes in to make a change if he wants to. So I think those are the things in play. The fact that Mason's under contract for three more years at least, the fact that they don't have an AD, and the fact that we don't know who the AD will be or what latitude he'll be given. Uh, the people that, that I've talked to that seem to know the most don't think there'll be a change, but at some point, you know, if they finish this year three and nine, which I think is possible, five straight seasons without a winning record is something that's hard for the fan base to swallow. And I did some research. I think the last five years or the last 40 or 50 years in the SEC, there's only been one coach that got a fifth year with a losing record. I think he was gone after that. I think that was Steve Sloan at Ole Miss. So you're kind of up against that, you being Vanderbilt, that no matter what the contract and everything says, coaches usually don't get that long without winning seasons. So that's you're asking the question that I think a lot of fans are wondering, right? Yeah, Chris. Just just to throw in a couple of a couple of takes on that, I think Kentucky fans could probably empathize with Vanderbilt fans more than maybe most because a lot of schools around the SEC see the challenges, the hurdles that these programs face um, when they're trying to succeed. And you know, let's say Vandy has a couple of pesky teams, they might say, "Well, they're on the right track. They ought to be happy with that. They're in contention. They're they're a problem for some teams." But fans don't aren't going to be satisfied with five and seven. That's not why they're fans. You know, I think it's un- totally understandable for fans to, especially the way you can bake in, you know, easier wins in the out-of-conference in the 12th game now. And I, I, I totally understand where people would, would be more demanding. And you kind of changed my mind on that a little bit as far as, like, you can be pesky one year, you can be pesky two years, but just being pesky five years is not what people are looking for. No, and I I don't think that, look, I think that there are places where expectations are out of control. Right. Uh, you might know a little bit about that in basketball. Uh, you look at, at, at Auburn where, you know, coach can have a bad half season and they want him gone. I think that <laughs> right now those folks probably aren't really happy that Gus Melzahn's got a $33 million buyout. But I've also seen the other side, and I don't think that when James Franklin came to town, I mean, throw out the people who always think Vanderbilt's going to win. You know, the, the most diehard of fans, nobody saw what he did coming. I just remember how bad they were the last year under Robbie Caldwell. I just thought they don't have any talent to work with. Well, I think the most impressive thing that he might have done was go 6-7 and seven that first year. Yeah. Because they had some other games they could have won in there against some top 25 teams that went down to the wire that were losses. So it wasn't that they just won some games. They beat some good people. I go back to Vanderbilt baseball, and I don't know how much your community follows it, but 20 years ago, their baseball program might have been in worse shape than their football program is right now. Mm. And Tim Corbin won a national title in 2014, and had Walker Buehler not gotten hurt in the title game the next year, they probably would have gone back-to-back 
Uh, they didn't even have a press box in baseball. You had to sit the riders on top of the dugout. Uh, there was really very little seating to speak of. Point is, now baseball's different because of the scholarship situation and things like that, but I just think that you've seen it done at Boise State and TCU and places that have made themselves powers. I think if you get a good coach and administrative support, now look, for Kentucky and Vanderbilt, the hurdle's going to be a lot bigger, but I don't think that that winning at, at any place is as far off a lot of times as people think. Uh, you know, P.J. Fleck, look what he did, too before he moved on to Minnesota. I just think if you have a commitment and the right coach, I think that winning is more in reach for most programs than people think, and I think we certainly learned that at Vanderbilt with James Franklin. Yep, that's right. Yeah, recruiting is one ingredient. It's an undeniable ingredient. There are a lot of good players out there, and if you can get a combination of quarterback competence and system consistency, coaching staff continuity, those things, you can make up for some of the talent gap. Um, and I like the Walker Bueller reference. That's somebody that Vanderbilt fans and a lot of Kentucky people can take some pride in. Obviously, a Lexington native who played at Vanderbilt, now pitching for the Dodgers in the postseason. Uh, and he'll be pitching again soon against the Brewers. Uh, Kyle Shermer, somebody that uh, Kentucky fans are very familiar with by now, is a really experienced quarterback. Definitely, I think people know and respect as a quality player across the SEC who can really hurt you if you don't get after him. And you mentioned in passing that they've got some nice skill talent. I want to I don't want to mispronounce his name, but Kalijah Lipscomb and Jared Pinkney and uh, they, they got they incorporate the tight end to the passing game. Um, it, Lipscomb's obviously been a really good possession receiver who's had a couple of really big games, a lot of catches this year. What has his senior year Kyle Shermer's been like? Have you seen any progress from him and uh, and and what kind of player is he uh, maybe compared to what Kentucky's seen in the past from him? Justin, his first three games were flat-out outstanding, and he darn near led them to an upset at Notre Dame, which is, you know, was undefeated, and, and that had a lot to do with the way Kyle played. The South Carolina game, though, was the start of some issues. I think they got to him. I, I think he almost got the yips to where he was reacting to pressure maybe a second before it got there leaving balls short, overthrowing balls. He started making bad throws. He threw two terrible interceptions in the Tennessee State game, and he's not mobile. So once you get after him, he's got to find his guy quickly or he's got to get rid of the ball. I just think he falls in these fucks, and he did this at the end of last year. He was really not good at all against Missouri and Kentucky. He's kind of in a four-game slide right now where he's not playing really well. I think he's a better player than he's shown. I think he's probably going to be on an NFL roster this time next year. Now, he probably will be the third quarterback, but I think he's good enough to make it. Obviously, he's got the bloodlines, but he's got to start making better decisions. They really have protected him fairly well, uh, but I think sometimes that and the fact that I think their routes are too complicated. They need some more quick-hitting plays in the playbook, some more dump-offs to running backs, but right now their offense is – in a lot of ways, a hot mess because I don't think that they run always the right schemes with the right players. And I think you throw in the fact that he's struggling. And despite the talent they have, um, you know, if your quarterback's not playing well, that dictates so much. And certainly they've got to have him playing better against a Kentucky defense that's really outstanding. It's interesting you mentioned that about maybe more quick hitters and dump offs. I was looking at Shermer's passing chart the other day. And they really don't throw to the flats very much. It seems like they throw downfield beyond 10 yards, maybe outside. It's just 
with so many offenses going spread, with so many teams slinging the ball around more, using the whole field, it doesn't look like Vanderbilt does that quite as much as some other teams. And I wanted to, to ask you about two more questions. Um, how, how important is this game for Vanderbilt this year, and, and what is their mindset? I mean, they're 3-4. and four, They've lost four out of five. It's almost easy to forget that if they were to pull an upset against Kentucky, they got Arkansas, Missouri, Ole Miss, and Tennessee. I don't think anybody would be shocked. If they got to six and six this year, got into a, snuck into a bowl game. If they if they somehow pull an upset this weekend, I mean the schedule really lightens up compared to the first half. Yeah, I think this is a tough matchup for them this weekend. I think it's easily the toughest matchup remaining on the schedule, uh, which I guess is no surprise once you list off those teams. Uh, do I think they're going to pull an upset? No, and in that sense, I don't think it's a super important game for them because th- their chances of getting wins get better after the Kentucky game. Now, having said that, if they win that, then all of a sudden they've got one in their pocket that nobody thought was coming, and that probably changes the outlook for the rest of the year. I think it's a thing where they need to get three wins somewhere. If you you get six wins at Vanderbilt, I really don't care how they come or for the most part who they come against. It's a successful season. So I don't think they're going to go into Lexington and win that game. I would be very – very surprised just because I think Kentucky can run Snell right at them and there's not a whole lot they can do about it Uh, and I think Kentucky will be able to control the tempo that way but if they did get the upset that would potentially be a season changer for them and Chris before I let you go I appreciate you being gracious with your time sharing great insight Uh, Vanderbilt has been picked eighth in the preseason basketball rankings in the SEC and you know (laughs) We wouldn't be saying this a couple of years ago, but if you're picked eighth preseason in this SEC climate, this quality of SEC basketball that we're seeing, that's like right a borderline NCAA tournament team. I mean, some people are going to yeah. be picking eight or nine teams to make the tournament. You're talking maybe people view Vanderbilt as maybe like an eight to ten seed in the tournament preseason. What's the vibe around the basketball program? You know, it's funny. I was talking to someone yesterday um, about this that I think hadn't followed the SEC. I said, you know, they could finish eighth or ninth in the conference and make the Final Four. (laughs) I think it's that kind of year for the SEC. I think that I'm not down at media days. I thought about going and just had too much stuff to do at home. But I I would have dreaded having to fill out that ballot. I mean, obviously you have to put Kentucky and Tennessee at the top and probably Auburn in there too. Um, a lot of people are making a case for LSU. Certainly that team's got a lot of talent, although you wonder how much the Sims tragedy affects them. I think that really from there on, I, I think you could probably put Ole Miss and a couple teams at the bottom, but it's kind of put them in a hat and draw them out. Vanderbilt does not have maybe the experience um, in terms of names people know. Maybe some Florida and some other teams have, but they have a couple kids in Darius Garland I know Kentucky recruited to some degree, who a lot of people think is the best freshman point guard in the country. And they've got a kid named Simi Chatu, who was a top five kid in the class until he got hurt. Uh, and he still wound up in the McDonald's All-American game, although he didn't play. And he's a kid that has drawn comparisons to Kevin Garnett. He's 6'10". He can put the ball on the floor uh, and dribble from the three-point line and, and lay it in or, or shoot a three on people. He is... Uh, just a, a terrific player. Those are two kids. Um, if you followed Vanderbilt, I know a lot of your audience has. They have never had anybody remotely like either of those kids. There's nobody that I can compare them to from Vanderbilt. I think they've got some nice parts around them. And Matt Ryan, 
who is a transfer from Notre Dame and a really good sniper from the outside. They get Aaron Neesmith, who was Gatorade player of the year in South Carolina. Saban Lee is a good player. I think played pretty well against UK a year ago. They got a lot of parts, but uh, look around the SEC, and so does just about everybody else. Yep. Everybody's always kind of wondered, even if it's been unspoken, if only they had a little bit more talent. You know, now they're going to have they're going to have the talent. They're going to have it in spades, and I think they'll they'll definitely be in the conversation as a tough out. Kentucky plays Vanderbilt twice in the span of about seventeen days. I want to say from mid to late January, the first meeting in Rupp and the second in Nashville. So, Chris, I really appreciate you joining us, man. Thanks a lot. Always fun. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot. And that was Chris Lee of VandySports.com. He, he joins us and helps us out in some capacity, whether it's answering questions as an expert for a content feature on the site or, or a podcast like this, and I do the same for them. Really great guy, knows his stuff, objective, follows Vanderbilt very closely, also knows the lay of the land of the SEC. Really good basketball mind. I always appreciate uh, talking to him and picking his brain. Um I did want to touch on a couple more topics, but before I get there, I wanted to remind you that Cats Illustrated is proud to now partner with Canfield Realty Group, which is currently offering a 40% commission rebate. That's the current deal when you buy a home with Steve Canfield as your agent. It's There are no strings attached. It's 100% legal. And we're proud to have Canfield Realty Group as a Cats Illustrated sponsor. And you're, you're hearing this, and you're going to see the ad on the site because we think they're offering something of interest to our community. He can help you out. He can help out people on our site. He's got a perfect five-star rating. Steve Canfield does on 119 reviews on 104 sales in the past year at Zillow. And uh, the ratings speak for themselves. He's rated as one of the top 10 agents out of, I want to say, about 3,500 agents in the Louisville area. And those that have worked with him know that, that they're dealing with a professional who's ready to make this process as smooth for you as possible. So you get a 40% commission rebate if you buy a home with steve let him uh make your dream come true help you find your next house uh you can visit canfield that's c-a-n-f-i-e-l-d realtygroup.com or you can call steve directly at 502-649-5687 really appreciate steve canfield helping sponsor this product of cats illustrated so please check him out um recruiting football recruiting there's been a report that Wandale Robinson may be visiting Purdue this weekend for the Ohio State game. I didn't see that one coming. I mean, I, I cannot independently confirm that he is definitely going to do that, but I have no reason to doubt it. This had kind of become a race between Nebraska, Kentucky, and Ohio State. And he has obviously been to Kentucky a lot. He's officially visited Nebraska for a game that was canceled. He'd been to Ohio State. That went, uh, I've heard, as expected. Obviously impressive, especially with the season they're having. Ohio State selling them on being the H there in their offense. Um, I know people concerned about uh, Kentucky's offense and how they might feature Robinson, but I've heard that an underrated factor is he wants to get snaps in the backfield, whether it's out of the Wildcat formation or taking carries or whatever it is, and that's something that Kentucky can sell them on. Um, we saw against Texas A&M, Lynn Bowden took a quote-unquote reception uh, a long way for a touchdown. They can get uh, Robinson or a similar player touches in the backfield, and, and that's the kind of thing that he's going to want to hear. But visiting Purdue makes you think maybe it's a four-horse race. Maybe there are four teams involved. Obviously, Purdue started the season very poorly, 0-3 if I recall, but I want to say they're up to 3-3 three and three now. 
the back half of their schedule is not easy, but they could sneak into a bowl game. And at, at the very least, the bottom hasn't fallen out for Brom this year. He seems to have rallied that program. It looks like Nebraska has impressed him with the fan support and Scott Frost's offense, and his interest in them has held firm through their struggles, although I can't imagine Nebraska 0-6, the worst start in program history, I want to say, has helped their chances. Ohio State speaks for itself. Kentucky, obviously the local option long-term for Robinson and his family. Uh, It's an option that he certainly sees the perks and the benefits um, too, if that's the choice that he makes. Purdue could be kind of a compromise. Got the offense, kind of like this, not exactly the same offense as, as Scott Frost would run at Nebraska, but he likes the offense at Purdue, and it's much closer to home. So wouldn't be surprised if this if this trip happens. Or maybe that the trip is happening is already a sign that Purdue is a dark horse to watch in this recruitment, and I had kind of written them off. Maybe I was premature in doing that, but it certainly wasn't a lot of buzz or chatter about Purdue. Uh, Purdue is also Kentucky's stiffest competition. I'm hearing for J.J. Weaver, who is officially visiting Kentucky this weekend and probably going to make a decision shortly after that. Um, He did officially visit Miami. Uh, He's from South Florida, but Miami just has so many defensive line commits. Like, How many defensive linemen are they going to take? And they're still recruiting... A kid that's committed to Florida State. They're still recruiting Braylon Ingram. They're still recruiting like one or two other guys. Like they're not going to bring in eleven defensive linemen. And you have to wonder how attractive it would be for Weaver to join like a group of like nine or defensive linemen, whatever they're going to take. But they're they're obviously still recruiting him, and he's from the area. I would say it's a UK Miami Purdue race with uh, with UK and Purdue probably the strongest there. I thought it was trending towards UK and Miami, but I would say Weaver is probably more focused on UK and Purdue. I'll eat crow if I'm wrong. Obviously, I haven't had a a chance to address Jared Casey committing to Oregon. Um, I had heard that Kentucky was very confident about Casey, and in about the week to 10 days leading up to that announcement, somebody told me that they were confident that he was going to pick Kentucky, and this somebody who was closer to Kentucky's side of things. Um, but as it drew closer, there was kind of some uncertainty. And when we, when, when Casey had this interview, the Courier Journal, I don't remember who it was, Gentry Estes or something like that, and um, he said uh, he had informed the coaching staff that he was going to be committing to of his choice. I, I knew he had not told Kentucky. I knew he had not told Wisconsin. I was inclined to think he hadn't told Oregon because um, – we at Cats Illustrated came across a bit of information that seemed to indicate Oregon thought that Casey, as of about a week before his decision, was going to be visiting Kentucky. And that was after his official visit to Oregon. It's very interesting that he would end up at Oregon. Um, but he really played his cards close to the vest. I, I don't think Kentucky could have done anything else. I mean, the, the inside linebackers, new inside linebackers, are playing well. Um, somebody told me after the fact that Casey wanted to play outside linebacker and he was maybe concerned that Weaver is going to pick Kentucky and Kentucky's already got several outside linebacker commitments in this class maybe that played a role but the way that Kentucky's defense has played the success that Kentucky has had on the field I mean you just what can you do I think they did everything that they could he visited many times over the summer they made their case and I wouldn't be surprised if they continue to talk to him communicate with him and leave that door open Um, but I think picking Oregon it wasn't a surprise when it happened, 
but it, it was a bit of a surprise from where this appeared to be a week before he made his decision. Uh, and obviously, uh, Weaver taking his official visit to Kentucky this weekend. I think DeMonte Crooms, who kind of goes by the name Tay-Tay Crooms, is uh, Kentucky's receiver commit from Louisville, who's, uh, who's kind of friends with Weaver, uh, is probably going to be officially visiting Kentucky, barring a change, this weekend as well. I like where Kentucky stands with Weaver. I'm not ready to say that it's a lock. After Casey, I'm definitely not ready to say that it's a lock. I know some people are concerned that there hasn't been more of a quick spike in 2019 recruiting given the strong start on the field, and I'm not going to dismiss that. Like, I'll be completely honest. I, If you had told me before the season started, Kentucky is going to be 5-1. and one. They're going to have won at Florida. They're going to have dominated South Carolina. They're going to have dominated Mississippi State. They're going to be ranked in the top 20 nationally, maybe in the top 10 after the next couple of games. I would have been surprised if there hadn't been more of an immediate recruiting impact. However, somebody did tell me, I want to say after the Mississippi State win, that they realized that the biggest impact was probably going to be with the 2020 class. And if you're afraid that there might not be much impact there, I would just say this is when the relationships are forming. This is when coaches are getting to know kids. Let's say you get to the end of the season, Kentucky's 9-3, and 10-2. and two. You couple that with what should be the end of the narrative about Kentucky not putting players into the NFL because, you know, they should have a good draft. Um, those two things could create an opportunity for Kentucky to really generate some off-season recruiting momentum through junior days early this year, through spring practices, coaches on the road, through summer camps. I think the 2020 class will shape up to be good, but I am a little bit surprised that there hasn't been more of an immediate impact, uh, especially with so many of these guys being in-state kids. Uh, but that's not to say they, they might end up with uh, with Robinson, with Weaver. Milton Wright, I think, is a little bit more of a stretch, but he, he's, I've heard, probably going to officially visit as well at some point. Um, they've got other targets, Kamar Bell, uh, out-of-state guy, and, and some others that we're tracking at Cats Illustrated. So don't panic. This this class is ranked, I want to say, I don't want to mislead you, but maybe in the mid-30s, the star ranking 2.94, which would be by a tenth of a point or by a hundredth of a point, the lowest star ranking of the Stoops era, but really not appreciably different than any of the other recruiting classes that they've had, with the exception of the 2014 class when they had 10 four-stars, which is a feat they may never match again. Maybe they will, but I think it's going to be really difficult. Uh, which is to say that I, this program is 5-1 and one with the kinds of classes, by the rankings, that are very similar to the class they've got right now. So, yeah, I, I want to validate the, uh, the concern... I don't, I don't, I wouldn't say it's a concern of mine, but I want to validate the point that, yeah, it's a little bit surprising they haven't had more immediate 2019 success given the season. But I do think that the 2020 class will see a, a spike upwards because of it. Thank you for listening. Again, this is Justin Rowland. We'll probably have another podcast in the near future with either Jeff talking Kentucky football or David Sisk. Uh, talking Kentucky basketball recruiting room, Clint Jackson, who is in Colorado covering the uh, USA Basketball event for us at Cats Illustrated. Um, and we're going to be talking basketball too. So please, if you're not a member at the site, we would love for you to sign up as a monthly or an annual subscriber. You can do that anytime. We're always keeping fresh content 
out there. I'm going to be putting up a mailbag with answers to a lot of the questions that I solicited at the House of Blue uh, in just a little bit. We've got a lot of stuff up right now. Thank you for listening. Big game for Kentucky this weekend. A chance to move to 6-1 and one and towards the top 10. Keep those Atlanta hopes alive. It looks like more and more it's going to be coming down to that Kentucky-Georgia game if Kentucky can avoid stubbing its toe. If, if it's Florida, Florida's a dark horse now because they've only lost one game. And if Florida beats Georgia, then they're going to have, I don't want to say an inside track, but they're going to be pretty well positioned. We're just going to have to wait and see. Kentucky's in the conversation, though. I'm your host, publisher Justin Rowland. Thank you for listening. Have a great day, and I'll see you at the site.